This is an RNZ podcast. When Usab spoke to Wayne Wright last week at his home in Woodville, he said he was trying to make it decent. The first time I saw it, I had a friend with me and she saw it and she said, that's disgusting. And I thought, that's right, it is. That was Milton Wainwright from Woodville, who's been convicted of willful damage after cutting the penis off a Māori statue on a walking track in the Manawatu Gorge recently, leaving local iwi distraught. Now, Mr Wainwright told NewsHub he and his companion weren't prepared for a naked male form during their walk in the park, albeit a stylized one made of wood. And on the same day on RNZ's 9 to Noon, Catherine Ryan looked at a more high-tech means of turning innocent images of women into naked ones. The Deep Nude app used artificial intelligence to create realistic-looking nude photos of women, and it was only women, it wasn't designed to work on men. And anyone online could become a victim of this sort of digital fakery, as artificial intelligence specialist Curtis Barnes explained on 9 to Noon. It would reproduce a new photo in which it had stripped away clothes and uh, inserted synthetic naked breasts and genitals, so obviously not the actual body of the woman in the photograph, but an artificial intelligence's attempt to recreate what it thought uh, that woman's body would look like in that particular photo. So even fake nudity is everywhere online these days, alongside more and more of the real stuff. But it wasn't always the way on our TV screens. Indeed, so rare was nudity on screen once in the pre-internet and pre-pay TV days that instances of it were almost national events. TVNZ presenter Angela Dordney, for example, had a long career back in the 70s and 80s. She died in the year 2000, but she's still best remembered now for briefly appearing topless in a one-off drama way back in 1982. Mm, Opening gambit. What? The man who fancied your breasts. Oh, I see. Man tells woman dirty jokers aid to seduction. Yes, well, Freud wasn't always right. Now, 37 years later, there are plenty of scenes like that in shows that screen after 8.30 at night on the main TV channels here, or at any time of day on pay TV channels, and most of those shows pass without comment or complaint, but not all of them. What? There they are, Mary. Oh, my God! Oh, I must have yuck. Most disgusting sight you've ever seen. That was one of the stars of TV3's show Gogglebox last year, and it wasn't just Mary who was startled by the controversial British nude dating show Naked Attraction, in which body parts of the prospective partners are revealed bit by bit, with nothing left to the imagination at the end. Now, this show sounds a bit sleazy, and it was at times, but it was also an interesting reflection on people's perceptions of other people's bodies, their differences, their blemishes, and even disabilities. But several people who did find it gratuitous on TV2 complained to the Broadcasting Standards Authority. Now, the authority upheld just one of those complaints as a breach of standards for good taste and decency, and only because it found that viewers should have had a more detailed and effective warning beforehand. Now, there were also complaints about another show from the UK with even more explicit nakedness, but this one wasn't just about entertainment. I'll be quite honest with you. When I've seen it before, it's mainly been in boys, Mm -hmm. and it's very, very, very obvious. Because you're a woman, and if I may say so, you've got good boobs. Your boobs cover it up quite nicely. The doctors on the show Embarrassing Bodies, who examined real-life people with unusual complaints, have seen it all before. But even viewers accustomed to nudity would have been startled by the up-close and exceptionally personal footage of the most private parts of other people. 
The BSA had a few formal complaints about that show too, but given the pretty comprehensive warnings about what was on offer, none of those were upheld. But it did give the authority pause for thought about nudity on screen today and sexual media content. It released two new research reports. The first had the results of online surveys and focus groups in which, broadly speaking, people thought that a bit of sexy TV was fine late at night, so long as people weren't ambushed by it. People having sex on TV, however, needed a bit more careful handling. Older people and parents feared that naked people in entertainment shows might give children and teenagers unrealistic, idealised images of the body, and many felt that the adults-only time band should start later than 8.30pm. But 375 out of 500 people surveyed said they don't even use the tools like programming guides, classifications or parental locks to manage kids' viewing. The Broadcasting Standards Authority also commissioned research on the impact that nudity on screen might have on our children and young people. That research was done by the Collaborative Trust, based in Christchurch, and led by Dame Susan Bagshaw, who's been dedicated to young people and their health needs for more than 30 years. So, after having a look at all the literature on this here and overseas, what did they find? I think we've had sexy advertising forever. Um, I think the public attitudes towards sexy stuff... It's interesting. In some areas, it's the opposition has risen, and in other areas, it's completely permissive. And, of course, the media has a role in shaping that. In terms of sexual images in films, in other ways, and I think um, all the social media stuff, it seems worse because it's more available to so many more people. Well, what are the key issues, then, that arise when we're talking about children and people under the age of 18 who are exposed to visual images of the naked body in broadcasting specifically? Well, what the literature showed was it depends on the context. Um, and if it's an educational, medical or even artistic context, um, nobody's very bothered and it's actually quite helpful. Um, it, when it's in a sexual context, I think it depends on whether the intent is to sexually arouse people, which is the kind of definition of pornography then that can be okay on people who know about their sexuality and who aren't disturbed and who've got good education, parents who explain things, parents who've, you know, they've learned stuff going through life. It's not a problem. But for people who've been abused or haven't got anybody to explain things, no adult to talk to when they're feeling uncomfortable, then that can be a problem depending on the stage of development of their brain. That other show which the BSA considered uh, the Naked Attraction one, which is an entertainment sort of game show thing, also crosses over to a bit of an almost sociological look at, well, how do people respond when they see different people's bodies? You know, they see the top half and the guy's all muscle-bound and um, and uh, the contestant might be quite attracted to that. You see the bottom half and realise, oh dear, um, you know, he's got one steel leg, you know, he's an amputee. Uh, quite an interesting response to difference. Absolutely. Um, and I, again, if there's shame attached, um, if there's un- a discomfort, if people get sexually aroused by things like that, then that can cause a problem. But I think the litmus test showed that most people found that it was entertaining and um, they were a bit shocked by um, because they hadn't seen anything of the like before. But I think it kind of almost normalised the fact that people have different bodies. The report 
states, uh, exposure to sexual content in the media is associated with more permissive sexual attitudes in teens. Watching popular television programs which contain sexual content can lead children and young people to see examples as normative and shape their own attitudes. Um, so is that saying that what the authority kind of labels, you know, sexy media, for want of a, a better term, really does have a, an impact on how children and young people decide to behave sexually later on as they mature? So the research on violence in TV showed that's a similar sort of effect. And again, very much about context. So if you've got parents talking to their young person about the, the context of this, that it's, a, it's entertainment, it's supposed to be part of a story, it's not real life, all those kind of angles, are, it's really, really important, especially the younger the person is. So if you've got a concrete brain... Um, and you're learning by absorption, which is what children do, then you're going to learn by absorption from television of all the stuff that you can see and all the stuff you can see online, just as much as they learn from real life. As they get older and are able to think about thinking, then they're much more uh, readily able to distinguish um, entertainment from reality. You need a parent to, to help you do that. That's one of the really interesting parts of the research was where the focus groups told the the authority that uh, some of the the adults in their 40s, who are probably most of them parents, were concerned about what their children might think about it. But then in your report it says there is evidence that some adolescents are thoughtful and discerning in their media choices and able to determine what's appropriate and realistic and separate what they saw on television or online from reality. So that's a pretty good sign, isn't it, if... At least some adolescents are able to do that. Absolutely. And I think the older ones actually do worry more about the younger ones just as much as parents do. Um, I think the really important thing for parents to be aware of is there are classifications, there are warnings, um, and maybe we need to work on um, making those warnings a bit more attention-seeking so that people actually are aware of the upcoming comment or content and actually can comment on their children's watching it, turn it off, get them to explain it beforehand, all those kind of things. Because these days with rerun TV and, and Netflix and all those other things, you know, you can delay the time you watch it. Um, and if children and young people are watching too, then you can actually affect what they watch. You can do something about it. But at the same time, they have got the tools with which to control it. Yeah, the BSA's research also, uh, the online survey, for example, finding 375 out of 500 people uh, don't use programming tools like the guides, classifications, or even you know the, the more intrusive stuff like parental locks to manage the viewing of kids and younger people. I mean, you know, the interviews and the focus groups, uh, people did express this concern about um, the so-called sexy media content, but, yeah, they're not using the tools that might enable them to, uh, to, to have an impact on what the children see. Exactly. It just doesn't make sense. So, you know, use what's there instead of complaining about what's going on. Just do something about it and use what's there. And maybe, you know, the broadcasters can do something more about making the information a bit more, um, I don't know, available in terms of getting your attention. But, you know, they're there and they can be used. Some of the older participants in the focus group suggested pushing back that adults-only time to after uh, so fewer younger people might be exposed to some of this stuff. But, I mean... (laughs) If parents are too slack, <laughs> broadly speaking, according mm. to this online survey, to uh, to actually enforce 
uh, any kind of rules over their kids viewing or use the tools that, that are available then would that have to be that assumption be have to be be built into whatever response the authority makes to this research? Well, I think you can push it back to 9.30, but the thing is that a lot of this stuff is available on your phone mm. any time of the day or night. So, you know, you can you can regulate TV and push it back to 9.30 or something like that, but it's available on all sorts of other media, so I don't think that's going to help. I think warnings, education, parents teaching children about the difference between what they watch and reality really, really important. Everyone's got a device now, uh, probably teenagers from, from quite a young age um, can get the internet on a, on a device in their pocket. Um, so really, is it going to make any difference if broadcasters uh, are obliged to adopt new rules that the authority might um, put in place as a result of this research when most of the content they're seeing along these lines is not, uh, you know, broadcaster-related stuff going out on the air on mainstream television. It's it's morselised content on the phones or even direct social media content that they're sharing. Restricting the way the broadcasters operate isn't really going to make much difference to that, is it? Not the timing, no. They could do better um, warnings, but at the same time, I think... Um, you know, those are a couple of research papers that showed that. There are a couple of research papers that show that it's incredibly good education stuff too. So, you know, we have to balance research and its results with um, other things coming in. And we know that all those things you mentioned are also influenced by parents' behaviour more than anything else. Um, so if young people watch their parents doing um, stuff like that and having loads of partners and, you know, that kind of stuff, that's going to be much more influential. We've known for years that mums who are pregnant as teenagers often have daughters who are pregnant as teenagers so there's heaps of other influences going on having said that we can do the best we can in terms of informing people so they can use the off button and of course one of the issues here is that um, the the public uh, will perceive broadcasting differently the level of offense depending on ethnic background perhaps their religious beliefs and so on is that something you saw when you you looked into this it was really interesting the difference between um, shows in western culture if you like versus shows um, in asian countries or um, in middle eastern countries so um, certainly the values the national values um, influence broadcasting Um, and when you've got more and more countries having multinational, multicultural, multi-ethnic, um, multi-religious values, it is really difficult to get the balance. Um, and again, I think the warnings need to be listened to, the content needs to be listened to. And what I've tried to do, and, and the various organisations who we work, for, who I've worked for, family planning and 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 youth health organisations. What we try and do is actually encourage the young person to develop the values for themselves. Um, And obviously they're highly influenced by their parents and their families and ethnicity and all that other stuff. But if they can be encouraged to develop their own values, which are respectful of other people's, I think we've got a victory. But in the end, I guess the Broadcasting Standards Authority, through the codes they uh, publish and enforce in conjunction with the broadcasters themselves in in the decision-making, I guess they have to set a a standard uh, that the media can follow which is applicable to all. Um, Do you think that's even possible in these days where attitudes are so different and and backgrounds are so different as well? Oh, absolutely. It's an absolutely really nigh-impossible task. They can do, you know, every now and again do research like they're doing at the moment um, to test the majority values, if you like, of our society um, and um, warn people that it might conflict with their own values so they need to think about it. Now, of course, 
as a doctor, and particularly one who works uh, with youth and has done for a very long time, uh, you would have seen it all before, as the saying goes. Um, I wonder what you make of um, the series Embarrassing Bodies, which was one of those that got complained about and one of those where uh, the Broadcasting Standards Authority asked uh, some of their focus group people to look at the decisions they made in declining to uphold the complaints about it. Absolutely. I think it's, it's probably incredibly educational. That is some of the most up-close and personal <laughs> footage you'll ever see anywhere. Yeah. Of um, of the, and that 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 kind of program simply wouldn't have been made. Uh, it would have been regarded as, you know, inappropriate if not indecent. Uh, maybe ten, fifteen, twenty years ago. Um, but now, do you think it's a it's a good thing? It's a healthy thing that a, a mainstream broadcaster in the UK can make a show like that. It then gets remade in Australia and can be screened in countries here uh, without too many people being upset. I think it's really good because I think it's really important that we accept that everybody's body is different, that it's nothing to be shamed about, that the huge diversity of shapes and colours and um, I think it's when shame is attached to the body that you've got problems. The Australians made a version of it. Do you reckon uh, New Zealand would benefit from a, a local version of, of that particular programme? You never know. There might be some difficulty in gaining participants, but um, there may well be people who are willing to do that. I'm not sure I know many of them, but, um, yeah, I, I think anything that presents the naked body without shame is helpful. It all depends on people's willingness to go on television. And You've got and it in one. <laughs> That was Dame Susan Bagshaw, a doctor and advocate for youth health, who co-wrote a study for the Broadcasting Standards Authority on the effect of nudity and sexy media content on young people. And you can hear more from her about that in the online version of the story, where you'll also find links to her report and the Broadcasting Standards Authority research on public attitudes to on-screen nudity.